Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you feeling? We are certainly having a week and a day, aren't we? It's been a pretty tough week. We had to say goodbye officially to Katie, and we're all very sad right now over on the US Gamer team. I miss her nitpicking at my stuff. I really do. (laughs) Yeah, Katie was awesome. She was an incredible editor great writer uh she had just a great voice i I miss her very much yeah yeah i mean i learned like i said on twitter i learned a lot from her because i'm just not exactly a grammar wizard and Mm. she she was she is but she's gone to a much better place i think the thing i liked about her was that she was kind of the the conscience on our shoulder constantly telling us that we need to be our best selves and mm-hmm. not suffering, not saying, no, that's good enough. Like, she would always push us to get better. And I appreciate that. But I, I do like how Nadia is like, she's in a better place. Like, like she didn't die. She just, she got a different <laughs> job. <laughs> so she got a much better job. She's going better to job. Apple. Good for her. Yeah. And I mean, like I said on Twitter as well, this, this industry does not value really good copywriters, copy editors. So I'm glad that she's going somewhere that does. With that out of the way, let's talk about what is happening in the world of RPGs this week. We're going to talk about Genshin Impact, which is very quietly taking on kind of a life of its own in the RPG space. People really seem to love that game. We're going to talk about the Shadowlands delay. We're going to end the rest of the RPG news. But the main topic, it's time for the HD era and our console RPG quest. We're moving on to the Xbox 360 which might just be one of the most significant consoles in RPG history. You heard me right. We think about the PlayStation 2 and the Nintendo DS and SNES as classic console RPG consoles. And not a lot of people think about the Xbox 360. We're going to change that. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review preferably a positive review. We would really enjoy that. We They always brighten our day, make things a little bit easier, make it easier to suffer the world being on fire at the moment. <laughs> I <laughs> shouldn't can, laugh, but yes. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and Mike is at Automatic Zen. We also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Uh, it was a little bit unusual in that it is actually Banned Book Week, and this is the time of year when we kind of examine the the books that are quote-unquote challenged by the United States in particular, and you have a lot of familiar titles there. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird has always been controversial. Of Mice and Men has always been controversial. So I started thinking about, well, why are these, ban- why are these books banned? And it's always something like, oh, this one has naughty language, this one has depictions of sex and this one a major one is well this one has like potentially blasphemous religious themes and that got me thinking well what jrpgs would be banned under these guidelines and the answer is almost all of them (laughs) because i got to thinking well of course i've talked many times about breath of fire 2 and how that was my first journey to kill god that would not pass muster i mean gosh i think final fantasy adventure slash saga first game was all about killing god that would also not pass muster. Uh, there are a lot of JRPGs out there in particular with pretty disturbing contents, and uh, I'm kind of glad that we don't have to have a discussion about banning them, technically. I'm, I just like to kind of think about the, the content that's in them and what would make 
what would frost my grandmother's preserves if she saw it? That sort of thing. Because a lot of the old JRPGs and the old Final Fantasies in particular, like, lean heavily on that <laughs> Christian imagery. Uh, yeah. So, like, a lot of the times you do end up fighting, like, God or an angel or, or whatever at the end of the game. Yeah. How many times he- have you killed God in an RPG, I ask you? Uh, I don't have enough fingers to count that high. <laughs> <laughs> I would be really interested to hear from the listeners on this one. I think that's a really interesting topic and maybe something that we should do for a podcast sometime. I mean, we've talked about so. RPGs with social commentary, but the most controversial RPGs? Yeah, I think that would be an interesting topic. I was also thinking about, well, which ones would be automatically banned? Well, number one would be Diablo because it's right <laughs> there in the name. <laughs> I think we Pokemon. had a listener once. Didn't you, you notice all those black that black magic coming evolution? through? Evolution, <laughs> yeah. If you remember, there were pastors going crazy because Pokemon had evolution, quote unquote. That's against and Alakazam God's plan. had the spoons and the the star on his forehead that obviously was a devil's sim- symbol. Yeah, I think it was. There was a whole thing about Alakazam and him being like a ripoff of some uh, illusionist. I can't remember how it goes, but yeah, that uh, was Uri uh, Geller. Right, right. Was he the Israeli guy, I think? And that's why they were kind of disturbed about the star in his forehead. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I think the Japanese name of it is like Ungeller or something like that. Uh, and like he's like a direct like take on that idea of mysticism or, or whatever. Yeah, I would like to have a Pokemon named after me. Hell, I wouldn't be pissed off. <laughs> Nadia Kazam. I would, I would totally be. No, I'd want to be a dragon type. Oxford Mander. I was about to say you you would fit with the current uh, faux faux English like the Oxfordian or something like that. Yeah, because it's all Gal- Galarian now. It's all uh, I got English. It. Chara Nadia. Aw, that sounds so cute. There we go. Perfect. Oh, Dragonadia. I figured it out. Dragonadia. Oh, there you are. Dragonadia. Yeah, like Dragonite. Dragonadia. Oh, okay. There we go. I'm a Pokemon now, everyone. Bye. <laughs> 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 all right. If you enjoy the newsletter. Please subscribe to us. You can find all the subscription information on the site. Okay, let's talk about the RPG news. First item of business, Shadowlands has been delayed. Mike, you're the Shadowlands. You're the WoW expert in the house. It seems like while Shadowlands was very promising to start, it uh, the community has been a little mixed on some of the decisions that Blizzard has been making. And I imagine that due in part because of these criticisms and the desire to kind of get it right and to improve the end game. But also because of COVID, Blizzard has had to push back the release date a bit. Generally, what uh, WoW occasionally has are make good expansions. The last one was Legion following Warlords of Draenor, which was not great at all and followed like a really huge content glut as they were preparing for Legion. Legion was the make good, made everyone happy. Battle for Azeroth stumbled heavily into endgame so with shadowlands that they're they're currently testing it uh the holistically the the general ideas are actually pretty good like the community likes it and the community likes a lot of shadowlands the problem that they've had is there are like a a thousand tiny little cuts like small things that need to be tweaked here and there and general class balance and stuff like that and I think it behooves them to try to get those small <laughs> things correct so that when this launches, it can be like, like Legion, that full, like, yes, this is exactly what we want. 
uh, sort of expansion. So uh, I was actually surprised to see them uh, push it back. And now the, the speculation is, when is it going to? A lot of people still think it's going to be coming this year. Um, but also the expectation is sort of figuring out when it's going to come because you, you don't want to do it prior to Thanksgiving. Uh, like you don't want early November because there are a whole bunch of other games. You don't want to do it prior to Thanksgiving because, you know, people have to go home and, uh, well, stop working for a while and spend time with their families. So that puts it in like early December, which is possible, but you know, it's, it's an either or kind of thing, but yeah, it's just that there, there's a bunch of small areas that the community has offered feedback on that they haven't had a chance to fully fix yet or to at least figure out what different direction they want to take. So I think this is a smart move, even if Shadowlands as a whole, I think is shaping up to be pretty good. Mike, on a scale of one to 10, what is your optimism level for Shadowlands? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say an eight. I'm feeling pretty optimistic on this one. Part of it is also that Blizzard came out for testing and they were really open. Uh, usually, what ends up happening is they do the closed beta, they do the open beta, and then they launch. Um, this one, they were like, "Here's the closed beta, but also while we're testing stuff in closed beta, here's what features are going to be coming to Shadowlands, and here's how." our philosophies led to these features and that allowed the community, not just sort of the influencers and content creators, but also the community in general to be like, well, we understand that you think that, but here's how we engage with the game and the developer like blizzard was more open to being like, okay, you guys didn't like that idea. We're going to go in a different direction, more aligned with what you want. Moving over to the Japanese side of things, there is a, Pokemon Direct just recently. A couple of items of interest came out of that one. First of all, I'm very excited about this, Nadia. Pokemon Go is going to connect to Pokemon Home, which means that I'm going to be able to move all of my monsters from Pokemon Go, well, at least the ones that are supported, into Pokemon Sword and Shield. And that's great because I have a lot of Pokemon in Pokemon Go. I have a whole lot of Pokemon in Pokemon Go, and I still play it practically every day. Um, I'm not sure who I would move, though. I have like a, a really great... Um, Tyranitar, like uh, called Little Death, that I might move over because she's pretty vicious. But I hear I there was. I don't play Pokemon Go, so I don't care anymore. I'm just going to move everything over. <laughs> Why don't you play Go anymore? It's gotten so sunk so good. Has it? I don't know. I just kind of got bored of it at some point. They added so much stuff with the quarantine, so uh, it, it's just been it's been fun to play. I'm not saying exactly like it's a, a full blown Pokemon game that rivals. Uh, Sword and Shield or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a it's a fun game to revisit every day now. Aren't they re aren't they rolling some of those back now? Some of the uh, quarantine. I think there's a couple of things they're rolling back. Like you don't. They, it used to be you had to walk half the distance to hatch an egg, and they're bringing that back. And there was something else about incense that they're uh, that they're rolling back. But things like uh, Pokestops, you can get them at a further distance, and. Uh, remote raids and stuff like that, that's all staying. And there was such a backlash over the rollbacks that I'm thinking they might even reconsider them. Also, Crown Tundra officially has a release date. It will be out on October 22nd. And according to Nadia, it will include a, quote, freaky-ass Galarian Slowking. <laughs> that Galarian Slowking <clears throat> is indeed freaky-ass. Have you seen it, Kat? 
I saw a picture of it. It didn't stand out to me as being particularly freaky ass, uh, any more so than the other slow poke, the Galarian slow poke. I, I will point out that if you Google Galarian, Slow King was like the first autocomplete. So. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on with the eyes? Like, has the shell completely taken over its face forever? The shell has completely taken over the Galarian Slow King, and they it speaks in a language that nobody can understand, and that's how they communicate with each other. It's, I'm guessing it's another parasect incident where the mushroom has taken over the insect. But the thing that creeps me out a bit is if you look at the official art for Galarian Slowbro, you can kind of see that the shell has latched onto the Slowbro's arm. And the Slowbro, you know how they usually have this a dopey look on their face and they're smiling. This Slowbro looks very concerned and very down or not down with what is happening. He realizes what's going to come next. And I think he's, He's kind of resigned to his fate, and you can already see parts of him are turning kind of bluish, as if to insinuate that the poison excreted by the the shelter is starting to get to work on the slow bro. And yes, eventually you get to the transformation where it just consumes the entirety of the, the slow bro, and there's your slow king, people. Reminds me of a head crab from Half-Life. Exactly, that's what I said. It's basically Pokemon head crab. Yeah, looking at the the official art for it, it has very 2020 energy to it. Just like, <laughs> oh, this is this is all going to go very bad very soon. We are all sloking. We are we are all Galarian Slowbro turning into Sloking. All right, final item of business, and definitely the most controversial one on this list: CD Projekt Red. It has been revealed. Originally promised no crunch for Cyberpunk 2077 has now introduced mandatory crunch as reported by Jason Schreier over at Bloomberg. It's a rough time. I think the thing that has disappointed me the most has been just the really crappy response from fans in general who are like, well, I work 80 hours in a real job. And what do these people have to complain about mandatory crunch, never being able to see their family and rampant burnout? Yes, there is definitely a problem in the community and outside the community of game development not being regarded as a real job, being regarded more as a hobby or a, a fun event. Also, also, hey guys, we don't want you to work 80 hours a week at your real, quote-unquote, yes. real job either. No one should have to. That's part of the point. I think it's born a little bit of jealousy because yeah. you see people going, well, I mean, I would kill for this opportunity to work a job where I get to interact with my favorite brands all the time and shape the direction of whatever and work with my favorite creators. That would be incredible. And I would happily work 100 hours a week to for that right. But when you're actually in the middle of it and you're having to, you know, fix all the bugs and do all the modeling, painstakingly model everything, and you're never getting to see your family, and you're doing this for months on, and eventually it's going to get a little old, I would say, wouldn't it? it? It really does. And I'm just giving a warning to all you people out there. Maybe Kat can agree with me here because she's not that much older than, not that much younger than me. Uh, the older you get, the harder it is to pull 80 hour weeks to 100 hour weeks. Mm. It just, your body can't take it. You don't, you don't, maybe you feel invisible when you're in your 20s, but it doesn't last. Yeah. So this reminds me a little bit of Red Dead Redemption 2. And the thing that's kind of a bummer is that we're going to be talking about crunch when Cyberpunk 2077 comes out next month. But when, after that, it's going to all be forgotten. Everybody's going to be talking about how good the game was. And uh, publishers will take that as more reason. Mm. Like, yeah, well, we'll get a lot of crap for it in the short term. But it's okay, because in the long term, we'll be able to just keep 
having developers crunch to death and we'll the we'll get a really amazing game that sells millions of copies out of it so it's worth it <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and i mean uh, when we talked about crunch before last time i also brought up the fact that like we'll have these high profiles like the red devs or cyberpunks that have a lot of crunch but crunch is more of a norm in sort of the industries even in games that we we definitely don't think about it like uh if you look at stories say surrounding smash brothers uh ultimate with sakurai uh definitely like he's talk about it uh euphemistically but it definitely sounds like crunch and mm-hmm. he's the top guy on that game so you know the people below him are also and yeah some of that's part of japanese culture but there's a lot of different developers around the world that do crunch as a norm or all the time and it's it's much more than just these big games uh, and it's sort of a thing that's unfortunately sort of baked in this industry. And that's part of why people have been talking about it more to try to pull back on that uh, as sort of a widespread thing across most of your favorite games. I will say this for Rockstar. Apparently things got a lot better over there after all of the very negative reporting about <clears throat> Crunch on Red Dead Redemption 2. And my hope is that that ends up being the case with Cyberpunk 2077 as well, that it gets enough blowback that CD Projekt modifies its practices somewhat. Yeah, I'm guessing they're not unionized over there. I mean, it's in Poland, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't, know what yeah, I don't really know what the, uh, the story is of the unions there, but unions do seem to be a big part of the answer, I believe. A month and a half to go until Cyberpunk 2077 comes out. All right. Uh, finally, Genshin Impact. The Breath of the Wild with, I don't know, anime characters that has taken the world by storm. I was watching it today. It looks like a mod of Breath of the Wild <laughs> in which they just inserted scantily clad anime girls who do magic and that kind of thing. And I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> Whatever floats your it's, it's free to play. It has a gachapon system. It seems like the devil itself has come. But at the same time, people seem to really like it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's actually so I've I've probably been the one that's played the most of it on the team. It's it's been me and Eric who have been playing it, and if you look at a trailer, yes, there's a lot of uh, Breath of the Wild inspiration, uh, especially in terms of the stamina bar, gliding and climbing, uh, and a sort of general aesthetic. But when I was actually playing game, and I actually wrote a whole article about this. Um, it doesn't really play like Breath of the Wild, like at all. Um, stuff is pretty well signposted. It's less about exploration, more about combat and picking the right teams and, and setting stuff up. And like, as I was playing it, for example, there are a couple of towns in the game. The towns really have a very strong Dragon Quest 8 and 11 feel. Mm-hmm. I agree. Sort of, I noticed that. Sort of like a, like almost, I, I, it's hard to describe, but that sort of uh, cartoony light aesthetic, and it's not like like Dragon Quest towns aren't really built to feel real. They're they're built to evoke that old school Final Fantasy Dragon Quest feeling, just in a higher resolution. Uh, and Genshin Impact definitely carries forward that same feeling. Uh, in terms of character designs. It's uh, evocative a lot of that sort of generic anime that you sort of see in the Tales of series, 
from uh, Bandai Namco. And in terms of combat, it's probably closer to Tales of, probably again. Uh, although with the developer Mihoyo's last game, uh, they said they were pulling from Devil May Cry and Bayonetta, and some of that has sort of made it over to Genshin Impact. And sort of as I was looking into the game itself, I was like, wow, it seems like they're really inspired by Japanese culture. And uh, that's actually part of the developer. Like um, their original, their their president, Force uh, Weilu, uh, mentioned in an interview in 2018 that their original mission statement was about their devotion to Japanese anime, comics, and games culture. So they are a Chinese developer, but from their very first game, all they pretty wanted, really wanted to do is make games uh, that looked and felt inspired by stuff from Japan. So Breath of the Wild is part of that, but the inspirations that they're sort of pulling from in the game are a lot bigger than that, I think. I admit I will be giving it a try when it comes to the Switch. I I still have a weird hang-up about playing free RPGs, and I've tried several times with, like, Brave Exvius, for example, for the iOS, uh, but I can't exactly sit here and mock the gacha element of this game because I am, like, the world's biggest fan of Xenoblade Chronicles 2. And that whole thing was like gotcha waifus. So uh, yeah, it was free though. Yeah, that that's true. Um, there there was no like paid mechanics. The I actually interviewed the creators of the game and asked why did you put the gotcha uh, free gotcha system in the game, and they said strictly to get people to share the game on social media, and it worked. But yeah, this is a um, Genshin Impact is a free to play game that is apparently to hear it kind of like nudges you and says, eh, eh, money, eh, eh. So I'd have to see how that sits with me. I mean, it's free, so what is there to lose, really? Yeah, it it reminds me, it's in that same vein as sort of Fire Emblem Heroes, uh, which is, it nudges and sort of pushes you in that direction, but it's not as overt. I also played uh, Final Fantasy Brave Exvius War of the Visions, which was sort of the mobile Final Fantasy-ish mm-hmm. uh, Game, that was a very Final fire ish yeah. Yeah. And that game, like, I stopped playing it because it's very pushy about its gotcha elements. Like, as soon as you yeah. load it up, it's like, hey, here's the newest thing, blah, blah, blah. Please spend some <laughs> money. Please do some draws and stuff. Whereas Genshin Impact is a little bit more uh, subdued. Like, they mm-hmm. know, like, you'll come to us eventually. So like, here's the <laughs> menu if you need to get there, but we're not, we're not going to push you. We know that you're going to come eventually because uh, part of Genshin Impact is about, and again, this is why I compared it to Tales, uh, Tales of Zisteria specifically, is about building a team of elemental-based characters. And each character has sort of a different element, uh, a different weapon, and different special attacks. And uh, you're basically random-pulling these characters uh using whatever their uh i forget what the the name i think it's wishes is the name of the currency um but you're random pulling basically the best characters that you can which is again why i compared it to uh fire emblem heroes where you're you're out there trying to build a team 
from a random pull that you have no control over. Right, yeah. Yeah, and Fire Emblem kind of Fire Emblem's pulls kind of limit you a bit because yes, you have the different elements that you subscribe to, but sometimes when you get to the summoning area, you can only summon certain elements, so it really kind of blocks you, which is a very big fu in my opinion. But that's something oh, else. It's totally a scam to get you to spend more uh, more of the currency. Yeah, because there will be times where you're like, well, I want this character, and they're only under this particular element. And guess what? That element hasn't shown up the last three times I've tried to do a pull. <laughs> So yep. I better pray that I don't get a uh, combo broken and or pity broken and end up losing, uh, getting somebody I don't want and having to start all over with my. I, I think the free to play thing is, is like people like Rocket League is the same way. Uh, Fortnite uh, is not loot boxes, but the skins are like $15 a piece. And I think yeah. people will let that go if your game is free. Uh, and I, I think that's honestly, if EA wants to do microtransactions, that's one of the things that it should think about. Just release the game for free. And then the difference between Rocket League and this game is that the gotcha aspect is baked into the actual gameplay with the characters. And you just know that initially it's going to be very forgiving and it's going to give you a lot of nice characters to start and lots of free stuff and, you, and it'll hook you and then you'll get to the end game and then it's going to be like oh but do you want the seasonal variant of a character that is also a lot more powerful well go ahead and spend your orbs or spend your currency and go get them yeah and, and uh, i mean a lot of the 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 big ones have to to do like hey we're not going to do pay to win but the free to play ones are going to be like i mean whatever man like yeah pay to win this is exactly that um and i i also think it's telling that rocket league just eventually uh just recently went free to play like entirely um and uh i don't necessarily have a problem with that now the the specific uh uh ancillary issues uh with the entire uh gotcha system and microtransactions uh i can't argue with that at all like yeah that that's pretty much true and the whales um i mean some of them can afford it but some of them uh send themselves and their families deeply into debt on yeah games like that uh and that's not specific to genshin impact or mihoyo but uh yeah that is the thing that does happen. Um, the fact that whenever a very popular new character will come out in Fire Emblem Heroes and somebody posts a meme of like, you can either spend $700 on this or this, and then they post like a <laughs> PS5 or a Hawaiian vacation. I mean, and it's serious. There are people who just do that. Yeah, I mean, it's like the question I've always wondered specifically about EA is why they don't separate Ultimate Team out into its own consistent thing for free um instead of trying to put it into uh like just have it as a res revenue stream for say the madden team or the fifa team that is ongoing and separate from the games themselves uh it's it's just i yeah like i i understand that. also i'm surprised that genshin impact has sort of been um exempt from uh let's let's just call it what is uh sort of the racist ideas around uh uh chinese game development um 
because the developer of GTFO was, uh, I don't know if they were acquired, but they got uh, funding from Tencent. And of course, that set off uh, more mm -hmm. uh, a large firestorm around all of that. Um, and uh, there are some real uh, sort of thoughts around that idea, but also a whole lot of racism. A whole lot of racism. Yeah, yeah. So, that tends to happen when, whenever Tencent comes up. Yeah, so uh, that's not to say there are, there aren't problems there, but also, come on, y'all. Some of y'all, we, we know exactly where, you, where you're going with that. And I'm surprised that Genshin Impact has sort of completely sidestepped that, despite being from a Chinese developer. It, I wonder if it's because uh, I saw someone call the, the girls in that game, quote-unquote, like the most like long well, i'm going to paraphrase like just like shining examples of, of feminism like femininity like just like the wide hips and everything basically saying that they were perfectly designed and i uh, think people really it's, it's less so than tales i was actually i also put in my thing that the characters on so i was like well i was actually vaguely surprised that they're they're japanese like anime inspired character designs uh, but they actually kind of hold back uh like the one character that yeah. i expected to be uh let's say robust uh is not <laughs> and there are male like they they are doing the the thing that i've seen talked about hades which is sort of like everybody is sexy uh and i was very sad that my 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 first character uh uh that i pulled eric got the cool one i got uh tiny tiny sword boy um, so, <laughs> which, which sword is tiny? Huh? Which sword is tiny? Yeah, I mean the it's, one it's, below the belt or the one above the belt? <laughs> uh, above the belt, but uh, yeah, it's uh, Fire Emblem is a good place to put it in that everybody's hot, and there's a lot of hot for everyone to go around. <laughs> there's plenty of hot for everyone. <laughs> is there marriage in this game? Like relationships? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. But I bet there'll be a wedding event. Well, yeah, I wouldn't oh, be surprised. Yeah. That's just a given. Um, and don't forget, sexy Easter. Yeah, <laughs> sexy Easter. Oh, he has risen like and he's sexy. <laughs> just uh, it's it's in every free to play the game. You have sexy summer, sexy Christmas, sexy Easter, and then uh, what was it? Sexy summer festival, sexy yeah, Thanksgiving. Yeah, Come on, we'll stop there. The big ones, uh, Fire Emblem and Fate Grand Order, are definitely in that that vein. Like, hey, here's the seasonal event. Like. Fire Emblem just added a character, an original character, and like the subtitle was like Lewd Dream or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Just literally just Lewd Dream. And it's like, okay, we're just we're just coming out, aren't we? Okay, fine. Well, they know that the sexier that they make them, the more that people are gonna pull. And Genshin Impact is already just they're they're just throwing caution in the wind and saying, Yeah, I know, whatever, our characters, they're all very sexy, and you're gonna want to uh spend as much money as possible to get them. And to stare at them, I guess. <laughs> All right, that's Genshin Impact. It's out on PC right now. Is it on any other uh, systems? PC, PS4, iOS, and Android right now. Oh my god, iOS too? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's going to come to Switch eventually because it's it's oh, yeah. fully fully featured on iOS. Because again, the developer uh, there's a whole bunch of, and I'm calling it the Chinese wave. Um, developers that have over the past decade or so started on mobile 
and free to play and stuff. Mm-hmm. But now that they have expertise and big teams, they're starting to move into PC games and they're starting to move into um, consoles. And especially since like Unreal has been a thing on mobile platforms, they're starting to move that expertise over to the console side. And they're actually getting pretty good at it. And there's a whole bunch of games coming. Um, Bright Memory, uh, I forget what the game was, but it's also based on the Journey to the West uh, that popped up, Genshin Impact. There's a couple of games that are coming from Chinese developers, and they're starting to sort of see this uh, pun intended impact in Western and Eastern and all that stuff. So uh, Genshin Impact is the first, and it looks like it's going well for them. So uh, we'll see how the rest of that goes. All right, Mike, thanks for joining us to talk about Genshin Impact. We can follow you on Automatic Zen. See you over on US Gamer. And we're going to continue on to the console RPG quest. Don't go away. Okay, it's time to continue on our console RPG quest, the segment in which we explore the RPG legacy of every single console that we can possibly think of that has come out. We've talked about everything from the Atari Jaguar to the <laughs> Sega Sega Master System to the Nintendo DS, and we're now going to be talking about the Xbox 360. We're officially in the HD era, Nadia. This was a very tumultuous time for RPGs, as we will soon find out. Uh, I don't know about tumultuous. Certainly for Japanese, I think it was an amazing time if you liked Western RPGs. Oh, absolutely. But it was definitely a time of learning, uh, as you say, especially for JRPGs. But uh, yeah, if the Xbox kind of demonstrated that maybe PC games belonged on consoles after all, then the Xbox 360 definitely solidified that. So, Nadia, what is your first memory of the Xbox 360? I got my Xbox 360 from a friend, and my first memory was dragging it home from the post office. Like, (laughs) it was (laughs) heavy. Um, But I think my first wow moment with the 360 was probably Bioshock. And just, like, the intro with Atlas and everything like that. Not an RPG, but definitely a, a moment that stuck in my head. Yeah, I think that was my first wow moment with the Xbox 360 as well, because as I've already mentioned in other podcasts, I was living in Japan at the time of the 360's initial run, and so I mostly ignored it because the 360 (laughs) and the PS3 were just not a thing over there. And then I saw Bioshock in, I believe, 2007, and basically my brain exploded. I was like, holy cow, graphics can do that now? Exactly. (laughs) HD is incredible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like I was, I, I before I really had the Xbox 360, I was like, oh, I don't, I'm fine with the Switch. I don't need HD graphics. Then you see them for the yeah. first time and it's just like, wow, this is a world of difference. It really was. And I remember back at that time that when the Wii came out, everybody was going, well, nobody has an HD TV. So the Wii is like perfectly fine. But I don't think anybody reckoned with how rapidly cheap, uh, how rapidly HD televisions became cheap yes and pretty soon like hd television adoption was quite rapid after a while 
It just really exploded, didn't it? Like, you're right. There was a time when HGTV seemed out of like, the average person's pocketbook, but then it just dropped and everyone suddenly had one and they had an Xbox 360 to go with it and talk about uh, talk about a look for the generation. And the difference between SD and HD at a certain point was just really shocking. Like, the first time... I saw Super Street Fighter 2 HD Turbo Remix or whatever. Oh, right. Where I was just like, oh my God, look at this incredible, crystal clear, hand-drawn characters who look like they're out of a Flash video. But at the time, I didn't matter because it's so sharp and amazing. Yeah, at the time, that particular game was a very unique look. Now it's extremely common, but for the time, it was a bit mind-blowing. So let's talk a little bit about the Xbox 360's history. Nadia was released in... 2005. It was a follow-up to the Xbox. Microsoft was always in a hurry to get to the Xbox 360. Mm -hmm. They viewed Xbox as kind of a test run where they would figure out all of the problems, iron out all the wrinkles, and then they would be ready to go with the Xbox 360. And one of the things that they wanted to fix with the Xbox 360, they wanted to get Japan, Japan on board properly. They were throwing a lot of money around early on over there. Um, they fully introduced Xbox Live as a thing. And yeah, they created a, and they wanted to be first to market over yes. the PlayStation 3. And they ended up being Sony by more than a year. And for a while, it was really decisive. And the Xbox 360, I mean, we forget about this, but the Xbox 360 was very popular. It was the third-party console of choice for most people, and Sony was struggling like crazy, and it seemed like Microsoft had won. It was it was a wild time, I would say. It was to the point that the Red Ring of Death, which would have killed any other console, I think, was more of a more of a hiccup in our culture. I, I suppose it ha it helped that Microsoft was always like, okay, well, send it to us, we'll replace it, we'll fix it, whatever. And they did that. Like, they, they kept their word to that extent. And uh, I think that really, really helped them. Because if they'd kind of shrugged it off, that would have been the end of the 360, I think. Well, it wasn't until Dean Takahashi did that big investigation about the Red De Ring of Death and how it all came to be. And how it became evident that Microsoft had rushed the thing to market. Even kind of knowing the problems that it was having that Microsoft mm. came out and said, all right, we're spending like a billion dollars on warranties. You can send your Xbox 360 in and get it repaired. I forgot that it was Takahashi who broke that story. God, it was so yeah. long ago. I think it was for the San Jose Mercury News back in the day. I so. remember reading that. I remember, God, I remember I was in a food court reading that for some reason. I don't know why I remember that <laughs> so vividly, but I do. Yeah, the Red Ring of Death really kind of subsumed the Xbox 360's legacy for quite a while there. Like, there were some people who were able to keep their three launch 360, but it felt like people were going through, like, five of them over the My course of the generation. My brother went through, like, three of them. We, ours eventually failed, but it took a long time. We, we got pretty lucky. Microsoft kept putting out new ones. It was like, oh, this one has the Jasper chipset. It's much better now. <laughs> this is the Elite version. This is the Slim version. Pro we promise it's going to work this we time. Promise uh, it my won't last burn 360, out. I I went through 360 three 360s myself. I had a regular 360 Elite mm -hmm. that died, and then I got a 360 Slim, which the 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 laser stopped working properly, so I wouldn't read my discs anymore. So I finally bought another one in like 2013. It was ridiculous. Wow, that's uh that is quite a few. I'm I'm lucky I only went through the one. At the same time, though, it was slim, it was fast, 
It had a really cool dashboard setup, which was kind of a new thing to uh, for consoles. We had never really seen that before. So it felt much more like you're interacting with a PC than a traditional console. Yes, very much so. Did you have an avatar? I had an avatar. And not only that, oh, I, sp- I spent money to get a little dragon for my avatar, Same. a little pet. It was really cute. I miss it. I miss the 360 avatars. That was like a direct reaction to the Wii because the success of the Wii because Microsoft looked at what Nintendo was doing. It was like, we want that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to at first it was so cheesy and stupid, but I was like, eventually, uh, this is kind of cute. I like this. Everybody complained about going away from the blades to the version that they had the avatars and everything, but that was my favorite iteration of the dashboard for the Xbox 360. I thought it looked really nice. I, I always liked the original. I was just nostalgic for it. Well, I didn't play with the Blades, so that's why it was never really a nostalgia thing for me. Oh, well, that's fair. Yeah, I didn't get a 360 till 2010, Nadia. That is a bit late. That is definitely coming in late, but I can't complain because my PS3, I only recently got it for my brother. I got a 360 only because my friend was willing to give it to me for free. (laughs) (laughs) Here's his cursed 360. Don't ask questions. Just take it. I don't know. You said I... I bought it for Halo 3. I ended up never playing it. You can have really? it. And I was like, okay. So I ended up lugging it home with me. And that's yeah, where so I discovered Mass Effect. So that's how you know it. So you now you know it. It's heavy. It's a heavy little bugger. But yeah, yep. that, that was nice of him. Yeah, it was very nice of them. And then I discovered that actually I love the 360, Nadia. Yeah. Um, I was not prepared to like it as much as I did. And because me and Xbox, the thing with me and Xbox is I never liked their controllers. But I got used to the 360s. I liked the 360 controller a lot. I liked it a lot better than the PlayStation 3 controller. I liked the uh, positioning of the analog sticks. The D-pad was not great. In fact, the D-pad, yeah, the D-pad was D-pad really was, eh. bad. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't perfect by a long shot. But I really liked achievements. This was back when yes. Gamerscore and achievements were a thing and people were very excited about them. That was a, yeah, that was a very interesting thing because I feel like Japan was very slow to adopt that sort of thing. Kind of like, well, maybe players aren't interested in this, but no, it turns out players are very interested in achievements. They're very interested in online. So yeah, like I said, uh, Sony and other Japanese developers learned some really hard lessons from the 360. Yeah. And the 360's online infrastructure was just way better than the PS3. If you played on the PS3... You seem to invariably end up with a lot of lag. You had a lot of issues on that front where 360 games tended to just run better. They sometimes weren't as pretty as a PS3 game, but weirdly, even though the PS3 was more powerful, the 360 games were often smoother, like Bayonetta was a good example. Yeah, and I think one thing we'll get into pretty soon is just talking about how the 360 versus the Xbox 360, one was a huge nightmare to develop for, whereas the other one was much easier. But yeah, as a result of basically getting a giant head start and having really good online infrastructure. And at the time, we forget about this, but 360, they had Halo, they had Halo 3 coming, and then they got Gears of War. And that was a really strong one-two punch in the West. And it was able to build a very strong lead early on in North America while the PS3 struggled heavily out of the gate. The Wii, of course, was eating both of their lunches, but... (laughs) The Wii, as Nintendo does, is kind of off in a corner doing its own thing. I don't know if you remember, I was writing uh, for other, like, several outlets at that time, really kind Mm -hmm. of trying to find my legs. And I remember writing for Colin Campbell, actually, a article about the the commercials of that era, because they were very good. 
Like, do you remember the Halo 3 commercial? Like, the, the, no. the, uh, I was diorama? in Japan, Nadia. Oh my god. You have to look them up. Like, the commercial for <laughs> Gears of War does not reveal anything about the game and is not at all, like, doesn't reveal any sort of thing about the tone of the game, but it's famous to this day for its use of, uh, the Donnie Darko version of Mad World. Oh. And it made the game look really dark and interesting, compelling. I mean, it's just a cover shooter. I was never a fan. But yeah, it was definitely a really interesting time for advertising and games. You should go back and look at some of the ads we had back then. I told you, Nadia. The <laughs> period between 2006 and 2009 is like a giant cultural gap for me, where I just missed everything that happened over here. A black hole, basically. Yes. Where Did you get to see at least the We Would Like to Play commercials for the Wii? Nope. Ah, those were per- those those easily sold the system. They were so cute. Really? It basically like it would be a family would be watching TV and a couple of Japanese people would knock on the door and they're holding a Wii remote and they'd say we would like to play and they'd come in and they'd play Wii with everyone and it was really funny and, f- and cute. I just remember everybody making fun of the Wii's name. That's oh, what how I remember. Not. <laughs> <laughs> it went from Nintendo Revolution to Nintendo Wii. <laughs> Wii and god, maybe I was drunk that day. I think that made it worse. Another thing that was notable about the Xbox 360 was that this was a time when we started having engines being codified. The Unreal Engine became very popular on the Xbox 360, much to the detriment of Japanese developers. And we'll Mm -hmm. get to what happened with Japan in a little bit, but suffice it to say, it was not a happy time for Japanese developers. Uh, The 360 launched, as I already mentioned, in late 2005. I remember being on a train in Austria and talking to a bunch of people and they're like, are you going to get the new 360? I was like, nah, I'm not going to get the 360. I'm going to get a PS3. I want all those Japanese games. I want to be able to continue on with that. And that didn't work out so well, unfortunately for me. Not for a few years anyway. Uh, It did not have a great launch. Actually, I would say that its killer app at launch was Geometry Wars, which uh, tells you a lot, I think. But maybe in a positive way as well, because... Xbox Live Arcade was kind of a new paradigm. You had downloadable games on console for the first time. And this is where we started to be able to get much smaller, more compact experiences, classic arcade experiences that we hadn't been able to see before. And it was a venue for retro genres to start making a comeback. And that was very exciting. I think Xbox Live Arcade was one of the the things that really launched the indie scene as well. Um, I just remember... I wouldn't say that it launched the indie scene, but it, it brought really, it more into the mainstream. It, it de- sorry, yeah, it definitely brought it more into the mainstream. Um, it's funny to think back on how some of those games are kind of primitive, like Castle Crashers. Like nowadays, it seems like such a primitive idea, but back but it then, seemed awesome at the time. Exactly, oh my god! Exactly, we had like basically Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but in HD. And with this incredible art, the behemoth did such an amazing job. Like, Castle Crushers looks fairly simple now, but at the time, it was like, wow, look at this game. And this is a downloadable game for 15 bucks? That's incredible. Yeah, and I think it also really kind of introduced introduced the idea of just spending a few bucks on, like, maybe a a smaller game, but still one that's, like, kind of rich in experience, unique experience. Like, again, Castle Crushers, like, four characters, four people online playing with each other. That was pretty awesome. And they were releasing games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and X-Men. It was amazing. That's right. Back when the back before the license wave just kind of destroyed everything. But yeah, for a time it was it was pretty great. You had the Simpsons too, as I recall. We also had instances where I think Microsoft was giving money to very small developers. And so we had yes. games like, for example, Cthulhu Saves the World and Breaths of Death 7 from Z Boyd Games. Which oh, that's right. 
were developed basically by hobbyists, but found their way onto an actual console. And that was a really cool initiative that definitely paved the way for where games are today. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely, it was a very important time for indie games. And uh, I, I have to say Microsoft contributed a lot to that, whether we remember it or not. A formative time for sure. Yes, definitely. We started seeing some of the first major games for the Xbox 360 coming out in early 2006, and I would say the most important of them, and maybe the game that would set the tone for the rest of the generation, was Oblivion. It came out in March 2006. We've already talked about Morrowind, Nadia, Mm -hmm. on the original Xbox. That was a big deal. Oblivion was a watershed moment for RPGs. It really was. Oblivion was a huge step uh, I remember the memes very well. Stop right there, criminal scum. That was all over the internet at the time. And uh, yeah, Oblivion was a very big deal. It was, well, step up from to Skyrim, basically. Like a lot of console gamers, this was literally the first time I'd ever heard of Elder Scrolls. Oh, so you, you didn't play Morrowind, right? I did not. I Morrowind just passed completely by me because I did not play on Xbox One. The original Xbox, OG Xbox. I was not a PC gamer at the time because my PC wasn't good enough. So I passed Morrowind. I did not see. And I was aware of Daggerfall through PC Gamer and that kind of thing, but I never played it. Right. Yeah. And because it was called Daggerfall, it wasn't called the Elder Scrolls Daggerfall by most people. I did not realize they were in the same series. That kind of happens, doesn't it, with newbies for, for the Elder Scrolls. They don't realize something like Skyrim as part of the Elder Scrolls. It took me a long time to kind of realize what's what and eventually get into the lore. But uh, I think a lot of people were in your position when uh, Oblivion came out where they didn't have an Xbox, so they didn't really play uh, Morrowind, and maybe their PCs weren't very good at running uh, Bethesda games. But given the popularity of the 360, it was very easy to, especially with word of mouth going around, it was very easy to to pick up and enjoy Oblivion. And that really, that was a a big moment for the franchise. Now, Morrowind comes out, or sorry, Oblivion comes out. It's this very next-gen experience with this gigantic world. People on consoles have never experienced anything like this before. It's in high definition. It seems so eminently explorable. And... It really set the standard in a lot of ways for open world games to come. And it helps that Oblivion, compared to Morrowind, was far more, mm, I want to say, accessible. It introduced mm-hmm. things like waypoint navigators and that kind of thing. So people had a much easier time getting to grips with it, knowing where they needed to go. I would say that RPG fans, and we're among them, kind of grumbled endlessly about how it was embracing the filthy casuals, something that would continue on <laughs> into Skyrim. Did it ever. But Oblivion was instrumental in making Bethesda the company that, would, that Microsoft would eventually buy, spend $7 billion to buy. Well, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, they certainly did, didn't they? Um, the thing I remember most about Oblivion is this one story that I never forgot that someone told on YouTube about how they were in Oblivion itself and there was a guard chasing them, wading through lava literally to arrest him. And what he had done was he had thrown a piece of bread at someone in, in <laughs> and his fine was one gold piece. But he was like, man, Skyrim guards suck. Oblivion guards are hardcore. While all this is happening, changes are afoot over in Japan, Nadia. Big changes. 
the Xbox was not very popular in Japan early on. Right. And it sold extremely poorly. And Japanese developers universally embraced the PlayStation 2. If you want to hear about some of the reasons why, maybe go back and listen to our console RPG quest for the OG Xbox. Microsoft wanted to change that. One of the big games that they got early on was <laughs> Dead or Alive. Which, oh, right. Yes, Dead or Alive. Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball. Hey. Hey, bouncy, bouncy. <laughs> and, but more importantly, they forged a partnership with Hironobu Sakaguchi, who had left Square Enix in the wake of the disaster that was Final <laughs> yes. Fantasy The Spirits Within to form his own company. It was called Mistwalker. And right out of the gate, Microsoft had exclusivity over Blue Dragon, a game that was basically a knockoff of Dragon Quest, but it had a Kira Toriyama art. It seemed like a slam dunk to succeed in Japan. I remember a TGS, I think, I want to say 2006, going to the giant, like it dominated TGS. Everybody wanted to get in and play this game. It was oh, wow. a huge deal. And I was like, I like, I very clearly remember how important <laughs> all of that seemed that Microsoft had Sakaguchi. That was a, a very big coup. Now, the thing that was interesting about Sakaguchi moving over to Mistwalker, starting its own studio, apparently he did it because he didn't like Sony's chairman, Ken Kutaragi. <laughs> <laughs> like they had a serious personal beef. Really? And he was like, screw you, I'm going to the Microsoft, to the, to the 360. That's amazing. I love that story. Um, Kutaragi was known for hmm, having kind of an imperious, uh, he was known for blowing people, blowing up at people. And apparently uh, Sakaguchi and Kutaragi had such an incredible blow up that it basically forever made their relationship, it altered their relationship and Sakaguchi was like, screw you. And it helped wow. that he actually liked the Street 60 he wasn't a big fan of the architecture, but he comes out straight out and says it in EGM in 2000, uh, in about 2005, I believe it was. He goes, oh, to June 2007 of EGN, I'm not interested in the PS3. The machine's architecture is tricky, and I don't like Ken Kutaragi. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he... <laughs> that's He's... really blunt for a Japanese person. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, that is not... The, the whole blow-up, and of course, I'd love to see that on camera, but I doubt anyone recorded it. The blow-up, the, the, just the outright, I don't like this person, I don't like this, this console they've made. You're right, that is extremely not Japanese corporate culture, but wow, it must have been bad. It helped that over Xbox Japan had a few uh, former Square higher-ups, people who he had worked with on, say, Final Fantasy IX and that kind of thing. And I think that also influenced his relationship. One way or another, Mist Walker is formed. It's Sakaguchi's new joint. Blue Dragon is his first game. It's going to be a big one. It's a tentpole release in Japan. And it does... Eh. Yeah. It doesn't really yeah. do much. It doesn't really push the system's agenda. And I'm wondering, Nadia, like you seem to have some thoughts on this game. Why didn't Blue Dragon hit as hard as it should have? Um, if you look at reviews for the time, you will find it gets a lot of like 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10s. Um, people seem to really not like the characters and the story. They found it very weak. And I find that surprising because when you think about the team that made this, this was Sakaguchi, this was... Toriyama, this was Nobuyomatsu. This is a part of the Chrono Trigger team, which of course made the best RPG of all time. They came out with an RPG that was, by all accounts, quite bland. Looked good, apparently, 
Uh, we will talk about the music at a later point. Uh, one thing, though, I do have to say, to be fair, when I look at when I was looking at old reviews for a lot of the games that we're talking about, a lot of the Japanese games in particular, you will notice the reviews criticizing these games for having those those RPG mechanics, the turn-based stuff, the menu stuff, like, oh, this is old-fashioned, we don't want to do this sort of thing anymore. So there was certainly a bias against RPGs at the time, especially traditional Japanese RPGs, but that doesn't really change the fact that Blue Dragon, although it had interesting concept with the whole, like, you know, fighting with your shadow uh, thing going on, it, it just wasn't the the slam dunk it really should have been considering its pedigree. Yeah, Japan was pushing, or Microsoft was pushing hard in Japan with games like Tales of Vesperia, which uh, it worked closely with Bandai Namco on the infrastructure for that one, getting achievements and all of that. There was a, I believe there was a bundle in Japan with Tales of Vesperia when it came out in 2008, for example. And a lot of developers were like, well, we'll just happily take Microsoft's money and use their <laughs> support to be able to make games and then easily ported over to the PS3 a little bit later, and we are able to double dip and make plenty of money, and this is really good. Despite yeah. all that, despite the push by Microsoft with companies like Trius, who did Infinite Undiscovery, and Star Ocean, and then, of course, Blue Dragon, and Tales of Vesperia, the 360 just never really caught on in Japan. Sakaguchi had a theory on that. He said, Microsoft has to change its marketing strategy in Japan. There are a lot of excellent games on the 360, far better games than what's on the Wii or PS3, but not a lot of people have a clear idea of what games like Gears of War are all about. Just look at the Windows Vista commercials. It's terrible. <laughs> when I read that, I actually did look up the Windows Vista commercial. It's fine. It's It's got a, a cover of What a Wonderful World. This is kind of cool. People enjoying their computer. What else are you supposed to get from a, a, a Windows commercial, really? It didn't really help that Japanese develop the, the biggest, heaviest hitters in Japan still weren't really supporting the Xbox 360. Like yeah. Square Enix, it took about five years for Square Enix to put something really major on the 360. To be fair, it took about five years for Square Enix to put something really major on the PS3. So, you know. But. <laughs> they were a little bit backed up that generation. And when Capcom released games, uh, like, what was that? that? There was that one shooter uh, oh, for Lost Planet. Lost Planet, yes. 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 And That's they also released uh, the Bionic Commando remake. Oh, God. Here's the thing about that. Like, the Bionic Commando 2D remakes. Re-armed, those were yeah. fun. Those mm-hmm. are fun. I like those a lot, but they just really dropped it with the 3D remake. I don't know what the hell. Yeah, and Inafune also was one of the principal people pushing Capcom toward the 360 early on. Right, So right. Capcom was seen as being really ahead of the game compared to a lot of other developers. Yeah, gosh, that was just um, that, that, that was one of those times where you just kind of picked up your phone and you read all this news going on. There was always something going on. Someone was always defecting somewhere. It really sucked because, I mean, this was the time that Inafune just comes straight out and says the Japanese games industry is dead. Yeah. God, he blew up the internet that day. Yeah. And and I mean, in a lot of ways, it did seem dead. Like Japanese developers were resolutely staying on the PlayStation 2 and the Nintendo DS, as we've already said. And it could not get any traction on the 360. The 360 was what was big. It was what was hot in America. And... When Japanese developers did try to go to America, they moved intentionally away from mm. making 
Japanese games and trying to make games that they felt would cater to Western interests that had none of the flair and the interest of a Japanese game. So they would just seem kind of crappy. Shooty, shooty, bang, bang, gray, brown, white protagonist sort of stuff. Yeah, it was it was a very gray generation, very brown generation. <laughs> it, it was extremely brown generation. Bland textures because HD textures take a lot of time to make. That's true. Yes, it was, the 360 was not great with its texture game. Although I don't think that's the fault of the system. As you say, it it took a lot of effort to develop games in HD, and I think that was the main thing. Uh, holding a lot of developers back, especially in Japan, kind of getting used to HD development and how much more in time intensive and expensive it is versus SD development. If you want to, if you want to see how people felt, I I think a microcosm of how people felt about RPGs at the time can be found in Lost Odyssey, which came out in 2008. It was the second, I I think it was the second game by Hironobu Sakaguchi's uh, studio, Mistwalker. And it was, by all accounts, just a tour de force, Nadia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had some of the best artists in Japan. It had Takehiko Inoue, who worked on the Slam Dunk series and Vagabond doing the art, and it was really cool. It was not your typical kind of twee anime yes. look. It had a really distinct, still Japanese, but maybe a look that could appeal to Westerners. It was in HD, so it was beautiful. It was on the 360. Uh, it had two discs, I think. It was kind of it a did, huge yes. game. I think it was the first game on the Xbox 360 to give to have two discs. Uh, it had artists from Final Fantasy IX working on it. It had a famous author from Japan, Kiyoshigamatsu, who composed the Thousand Year of Dreams short stories. Nobuo Uematsu did the music. And even the stories were translated by a renowned scholar and translator named Jay Rubin, who was recruited because he was just so prestigious. And he normally was like, I hate video game violence and I'm not going to mm-hmm. perpetuate it. But then he read the stories and were like, wow, these are so good. I have to actually work on this game. Like, that's how good Lost Odyssey was. And it featured Final Fantasy XII's cutscene director, like, in so many respects. Like, I think if Lost Odyssey came out today, it would be an enormous deal. Like, people would be losing their shit over this game. It would be one of the year's bestsellers. But at the time, it had a 78, it got a 78 on Metacritic. Yeah. People were praising its writing and saying that it's a really beautiful game. And they said this game is also old fashioned, an old fashioned slog, and it's boring. No. <laughs> yeah, like I mentioned earlier, reading reviews for Xbox 360 RPGs, there was a lot of kind of disdain, even mockery for for older RPG mechanics. It's really too bad because Lost Odyssey, a lot of people would say that Lost Odyssey was kind of, quote unquote, the true Final Fantasy XII, in that it was much more in line with what had come before with Final Fantasy, had an overworld, it had classic turn-based systems, so many of its systems were very similar to what you might find in Final Fantasy IX. And it's okay to innovate in everything, but... In a lot of ways, Lost Odyssey is reflective of what was lost, and it shows that the genre could translate into the modern era, and it makes me genuinely sad that we just don't have enough games like this. Even now, when you look at Final Fantasy VII Remake, you see Square digging in its heels and saying, no, we're not going to do a game like Lost Odyssey. We're going to do a more of an action-based game. And a lot of developers seem to agree with them, so to some extent, that bias still exists. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, it is a shame because Lost Odyssey, as you said, I feel like if it was released today, it would get a lot more attention. And it's basically impossible to find now. Like, is it on any online storefronts? It's it's kind of it sad how I impossible it is to get these days. Yeah, I guess it's one of those games that's kind of lost to the ethers of time. <laughs> lost is the right wor- word for it? Lost Od- Our Lost Odyssey is quite lost. Well, you can buy it on the Microsoft Store right now. Oh, okay. So it's not quite, yeah. it's not totally lost. So you could theoretically play it on your Xbox One, maybe? Uh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, it says available X- on Xbox Series X and Xbox One, so you can play it right well, there. Hell. It's not lost. Yay! Yay. It's found. We lost found Odyssey it, Nadia. Found. <laughs> <laughs> there Which it is. reward. There it is. Oh, man, Lost Odyssey is gone forever. Oh, nope, found it. <laughs> it's like that uh, Simpsons bit where Bart opens up the Fine Waddle Yet Again book and it's Waddle's right front and center waving. It's not even trying anymore. It's not even trying anymore. <laughs> Uh, but I would really like a remaster of that game. Yes, I would definitely eat up a remaster. I think or a lot Lost of people Odyssey would. too. Yeah, heck, give us Lost Odyssey. Uh, come on, Sakaguchi, you, you're a cool guy. I want to see what you're working on. So, so give a thousand us a- and one years of dreams. I don't know. Sakaguchi just seems to want to make mobile games, and he, he he's kind of like in semi-retirement these days, hanging out in Hawaii. You know, well, if he was hanging out in Hawaii, I'd be I'd be semi-retired myself. I'd be checked out to lunch all the time. So while all of this was happening in Japan and Japan was suffering through kind of a dark time and we had games like Last Remnant, which people will stand for today, but man, it was seen as such a mess at the time because of the Unreal Engine and real tech problems, lots of bugs, that kind of thing. Like that was just indicative of what was happening over there. Over in America in 2007, we just had one of the all-time great years for video games. Yes. Like 2007 was unbelievable, Nadia. I mean, here are some of the games that came out in 2007. Bioshock. Call yes. of Duty Modern Warfare. Mirror's Edge. And maybe the big one, a game that came out on our top 25 RPG list, the game that made Bioware, for better or worse, <laughs> that would be Mass Effect. Which, mm. man, Mass Effect. Wow, the, the game that made the sex box. <laughs> oh right that whole thing that was addressed in your panel i walked in just in time for that part (laughs) you saw that i saw the alien sex i did indeed oh my god we watched the entire scene it was great it was uh it was vintage all right (laughs) it was oh god it was so embarrassing but that was like where game culture was at the time where it looked at sex with the kind of maturity that a horny teenager would take Yes, it was uh, It was really kind of like, oh, this is titillating to some people, I suppose. Okay. But I guess it was like, well, we're, we're grown up now, so we have to have sex in our games. Wow, Mario Galaxy came out in 2007 as well? That was The original Uncharted game. came out in 2007. Rock Band came out in 2007. Oh. The Orange Box came out in 2007. God of War 2 came out in 2007. The Orange Box was freaking insane. That was another, that was like Half-Life, Half-Life 2. Uh, was it uh, Portal? <laughs> Portal was a huge, huge deal. You know what else came out in 2007? What's that? A little game called The Witcher. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually found, because I previewed that, as I've said, at uh, E3 2006, and I actually found the press kit from that in my dra- in my desk drawer. So I, I have a Trapper Keeper that's got The Witcher on it in Geralt. While the Xbox 360 was seen as killing the Japanese games industry, it was also seen as kind of killing the PC gaming industry as well. Because... Sure, we had had games like Half-Life 2, and we had had Steam had come out a few years before, but 
in many respects, the PC was on its way from a very to a very difficult transition away from classic PC genres, right? Like mm-hmm. RPGs had changed, uh, shooters had become had moved over to consoles, uh, wheelhouse genres like strategy games had gone away. Blizzard was still very successful because of games like World of Warcraft, but that was like one big game. Like all of the other smaller fish kind of went away, and the the general feeling at the time was that all of the good games were going over to console. If you weren't on 360, you were kind of dead, right? And so the Witcher, so everybody was sitting around going, so when's the Witcher going to come over to the 360 so that everybody can <laughs> actually play it? And it, I don't think it ever did, actually. It never did. It stayed on PC forever. Yeah, I think it did. But um, I never thought of it that way in terms of the what the 360 meant for the PC. Uh I always just kind of figured, well, if it was on the Xbox 360, it was on the PC. But I, yeah, I guess that wasn't the case. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't always a cross-platform thing going on. The PC kind of turned it around starting this past decade. And yes. uh, now we're kind of in a golden age of PC releases. I play more on my PC than almost any other platform uh, these days. Yeah, it's actually kind it's of remarkable. A, we are living in good times for cross-platform stuff. <laughs> we really are. I'm happy about that. So the interesting thing about the Xbox 360, so eventually the PS3 would start to catch up and would be on more even footing. Uh, The first five years or so for the 360 were really, really good. Yes. And then it just kept going. (laughs) Unlike the original Xbox, the original Xbox came around, it lasted four years, and then boom, Microsoft just pulled the plug, it was done, we're out of here. The 360 just kept going and going and going. Uh, It felt like we had two generations kind of wrapped into one in a lot of respects with the 360. And by the 2010 or thereabouts, it started to lose steam a fair bit. I mean, it was still the kind of the platform of choice I felt for third-party games, but the PS3 was starting to overtake it a bit with uh, exclusives and whatnot. We still had Gears of War 2. We still had... uh, yeah. Halo, we still had Halo Reach in 2011, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Japanese developers kind of gave up with the 360 uh, after a while and mostly focused on the Nintendo DS and to some extent the Nintendo Wii. There was a very weird moment in, I would say, 2010 and maybe the moment that would set the stage for everything bad that happened to Microsoft from 2013 onward, where Microsoft took all the wrong lessons from the Nintendo Wii and decided to make the Kinect and then decided to make the Kinect the centerpiece of its strategy and basically kill all of its internal studios. It was bad, Nadia. (laughs) Yeah, it actually was not a great time, particularly for Rare, a very talented uh, studio that Microsoft had acquired and which was a little bit surprising. Uh, When I interviewed David Wise, uh, the former composer for Square and Donkey Kong Country, he said... That was basically a time when it he didn't recognize Rare anymore. It was just not what he remembered. He 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 did say that it is getting definitely back on track thanks to releases like uh, um, what was it a little pirate adventure game? Uh, sea of Thieves. Sea of Thieves, <laughs> a little pirate adventure game. Yeah, so they are getting back on track, becoming more like the Rare everyone remembers. You know what though? That was a you're right. That was a very long generation, wasn't it? And I wonder if it was because of the uh, economic crisis that was going on at the time. People were still trying to recover. Uh, they did not really have money to spend on consoles, so we just kept on going and going. 
And with the 360, you're right, it did start to lose some steam, look kind of old and creaky. And I think part of the reason is something we talked about earlier is because the Red Ring of Death just kept on afflicting people, not just <laughs> once, but twice, but three times, even with the new systems out. People's old systems were still kind of falling out of the sky. So that didn't really help the image of the the 360, especially when the PS3 was starting to get its legs, starting to look a lot more slicker and more powerful the way it was supposed to look originally. I think the difference was that we had reached a point where technology increases had started to slow down, right? We started mm-hmm. to get diminishing returns. There was definitely, definitely a leap when you went from the 360 to, say, the Xbox One or the PS3 to the PS4, but it wasn't as dramatic is when you went from the original Xbox, the OG Xbox, to the 360. Yeah, so, like the I feel like the HD leap was the last big surprise we had for graphical for graphics. Yeah, and it wasn't like you had a giant improvement to be made on the next gen as well. Like 360 was where online play was truly codified compared to the OG Xbox. That was where mass adoption of online play became a thing. Can you believe, Nadia, that back in like 2009, still more Mm -hmm. people played their consoles offline than played them online? Like most people played without actually connecting their their home console to the internet. Given how today we we play so casually online, uh, back then it seemed to, I guess it still kind of seemed like space technology. (laughs) (laughs) playing your console online Wi-Fi wasn't that common still in 2008 2009 no uh ethernet broadband uh like some people were a lot of people were still on dial-up i actually remember being with a a, staying over one day with a friend who uh still had dial-up she lived up north in canada ontario and she was downloading an update for half-life 2 via uh, via dial-up and that took all day (laughs) I think also it helped that people weren't on smartphones and social media was still extremely new. So people still weren't in that internet mindset. Plenty of people went through their day to day without ever really logging onto the internet. And then by 2012, thereabouts, it became mass adoption. All of that happened and people were always on the internet forever. (laughs) Forever and ever and ever. Yeah, I think smartphones really pushed us all onto the internet 24-7. For better, for worse. I mean, I was very plugged in by two, by like 1995, so I was a lost cause from the start. But <laughs> yeah, it's hard to think, God, when we wanted to insult each other online, we sent each other like really sloppy messages on Xbox Live. I remember just seeing all of my friends online. Now I don't even check my friends list when I'm on a console. Oh, me neither. You're right. It was kind of exciting back in the day, but it's now like, it's oh, like... Oh, what are they playing? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh you my get God, to be this a is little so cool. bit of a voyeur. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, I only have 20 people playing Animal Crossing on Switch. That's great. I think the last thing that we should mention is it's linked to we're talking about internal studios over at Microsoft. Rare was having a hard time because its founders left and it was trying to find its sense of purpose. And it was putting out stuff like what? Viva Pinata? Was that a rare game? That was actually a cute game. That Viva Pinata was a good game. That was. It was Viva Pinata. They had one, they had two. They started to be kind of like a, they started to have problems around the time they were regulated, like they were assigned to, to Connect games, basically. Oh my gosh, yeah. Connect was not a good system. No, although it's, it's funny, I actually saw in a dinosaur exhibit recently at the Toronto, at the Royal Ontario Museum, and they have this like little game where you could like punch a dinosaur or something like that. I can't remember why. And that used to connect. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, no kidding. Wow. Connect yeah. setting in the, in the wild. Yeah. Apparently they use them for like uh, doctors use them. Surgeons use them. They're, they're out there. They're just good for everything except gaming. Hey, the Connect was the Connect was very promising at the time and it sold a lot. It just was nothing more than a proof of concept. Though Paul and Ma- Peter Molyneux did the, the Milo demonstration. Oh my God. That was such a disaster. That was fantastic. Well, everybody was very excited about that. It was a disaster, know, but it was interesting. It was interesting, but then it was a total lie. And oh, yeah, I it was a total lie. I can't and remember. That kind of defines wrote... Lionhead in general, right? Because it really, really does. Though and Fable like... 2 and Fable 3 came out, Fable, uh, this is kind of Lionhead's heyday, right? Uh, on the 360. Yeah. Fable 2 is probably the best regarded game in that entire series. It definitely is. Um, Fable 2. Uh, Apparently, people said that it kind of followed up on a lot of the promises uh, that you had with Fable 1 and the, the infamous acorn that you're supposed to grow across the entirety of the game. Fable 2 was definitely one of the first games that really made people feel like they were making meaningful choices and really exploring really deep, rich, open worlds. Fable 3 was still good, but again, kind of made some promises that it didn't live up to, and the choices you made were very black and white, so to speak, and I think that's something we've talked about in the in, on the show before. Fable 3, I think I've already mentioned, was just a huge disappointment to me because I could game the system so easily to break what was supposed to be its fundamental choice. Exactly, yeah. I think a lot of people did that. Fable was supposed to be this grand, amazing, holodeck-like adventure where you're living your own life. And then Fable was completely overshadowed by Bethesda, which came out and actually mm. fulfilled that promise with games like Fallout, uh, Fallout 3, and Skyrim, and all of that kind of stuff. And then ultimately it was like, oh yeah, Fable seemed nice. It, it was a nice, accessible, kind of happy action-adventure game. It had a dog. You could do a lot of different things. You could <laughs> have, have sex. You could, you could cheat on your wife, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I would say that when it came to the 360 generation, Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas and Skyrim just completely overshadowed Fable. Yeah, I agree. Uh, everyone kind of forgot about Fable once Skyrim came out. Yeah. Even though Fable is the, the prettier game by far. Skyrim came out in 2011, toward the end of the Xbox 360 generation. Within a couple, like, two, less than two years later, we had the PS3 and the Xbox, or PS4 and the Xbox One. Skyrim is still going. Oh, God, yes. Is it ever it? going? I can believe it. The modding scene is crazy, and that's part of the reason I think it keeps on going. And although I do enjoy the memes that portray uh, Todd Howard. Uh, just shoving the game down everyone's throat. I like the meme where people go, I'm glad I grew up with this and not this, and it's just Skyrim both times. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They do that with GTA V as well. Easily, yes. But it seems special for Skyrim because GTA V has been almost the same release across all these years. I think there was an S- a separate one for PS5, but Skyrim's on everything that keeps coming out. I mean, we could talk all day about the impact of games like Skyrim and and Fallout 3 on the Xbox 360, but we have already uh, on have. a lot of different other consoles. Or, I mean, yeah, obviously, Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, Skyrim, Watershed Moments in for RPGs, and they found their true expression, in my opinion, on the Xbox 360. That was the moment where we completed the transition 
from PC to console in so many respects. And I feel like Skyrim is really associated with the 360 first and foremost as far as console releases yes. go because the PS3, the PS3 release, version was shit. <laughs> it was a disaster. It was so bad. And it really exemplified all the problems that the PS3 ended up having. Yeah, I seem to remember something about save data just completely bricking the system. Or, or <laughs> It was ridiculous what happened. Yeah, it, it, it was just so many games. It's like, if you want to play the this game the right way, you got to play it on the 360. And so I just didn't even think about buying games on my PS3 unless it was an exclusive. That was, there was where there was I was. No need to. And then my mindset completely flipped the next generation because Microsoft would take all of that goodwill and momentum it built up through this generation and completely squander it. They just and, flushed it right down the toilet. And we'll talk about that with the Xbox One. But let's wrap up, Nadia, and talk about the legacy of the Xbox 360. When I look back on the Xbox 360, I see a console that, I mean, it gave us HD, gave us online, it introduced the concept of indies that are going to be digitally downloadable. It provided the framework for how we understand modern consoles today. And... Games like Oblivion and Fallout 3, Fallout 4 were a humongous deal. BioWare, for better or worse, became the BioWare that we know it today and experienced its true golden age through the Mass Effect series. Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 were humongous deals. We didn't even get around to talking about Dragon Age, which oh, was their right. attempt to bring back the Baldur's Gate series and put that on console as well. Uh, Japan had a hard time, but it also had some successes. Lost Odyssey is an amazing gem on the 360. And the thing that I really like about this is that you can play 99% of these games still through the Mm -hmm. Xbox One and Xbox Series X thanks to backwards compatibility. So thanks for that, Microsoft. Yeah, there's a lot to be said, a lot to be praised, actually, for Microsoft's backwards compatibility because Mm -hmm. it's given how resistant Sony is and Nintendo, you just want to kick them in the butt for all the stuff that they do. But Microsoft is just like, if it exists, you can play it. And I really like that. But the dark side of it is that this is the time that we started having things like microtransactions. Oh, yeah. Although, to be fair, the first time I ever saw a microtransaction was I used to play a a fun little Korean game called Gunbound, which was a, a copy of Worms, but a lot more anime and cute. And I said, just when I, my reaction was like, wow. You ha- you can pay for for your uniforms and stuff. That's that's ridiculous. Who's going to do that? That'll never take off. I mean, we didn't even mention it with Oblivion, but Oblivion had one of the first really infamous instances of DLC, quote unquote, which was the horse armor. It was something like twenty bucks for horse armor. Or... I don't think it was that much. Come on, it, yeah, was, it was, but it was cosmetics. People were going, well, "Who would ever buy spend money on this cosmetic crap?" Uh, well, we have our answer, don't we? Oblivion Dev is not sorry. Is sorry, not sorry for horse armor. <laughs> it was two dollars. Oh, okay, so that's that's a far cry from twenty, but that's still that is indeed a microtransaction. And now today, people will spend lots of money on cosmetics, or in the case of Genshin Impact, uh, sexy anime girls that they can have as their wives. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> someone started a racket, and it sure did take off. What do you think is the best RPG to come out on the 360? Um, I'm going to have to go with Skyrim. It was the first RPG that really did endear me to any sort of Western RPG. Hmm. I felt like, because I always felt a little bit overwhelmed by Western RPGs being without, like, without having a linear story, without, when you kind of throws you into the ash and gives you like systems that don't, they don't really explain those systems. But I felt like Skyrim, by sticking to it, 
and wanting to stick to it, I learned a lot about Western RPGs. And of course, it was just a, a fun game where you could ride your horse and there's so much to discover and so many weird little background stories that you can enjoy and you can marry a werewolf. Like, come on. I think Lost Odyssey is the most underrated RPG in the 360. Yeah. I think that Fallout New Vegas is the best. And I think that our top 25 RPG list reflects that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm still giving it to Skyrim, though. Okay. That is our Xbox 360 console RPG quest. Quite a remarkable console when all is said and done. Certainly a historical one. What are your memories of the Xbox 360? What was your favorite RPG on it? Was there anything that we missed? Send me an email at cat.bailey@usgamer.net. Or send me a DM on Twitter and we will talk about it. And that's the cons- and that is the Xbox 360 console RPG quest. Let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we listen to a track from a classic RPG and talk about why it matters because as we all know music is so important to our understanding of RPGs this week's track is from Blue Dragon one of the early JRPGs for the 360 first game to come out from Mistwalker and Hironobu Sakaguchi post Final Fantasy let's have a listen to this song Nadia, you picked this song from Blue Dragon. It's called Eternity. Why did you pick this song? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you read the description I wrote down, Kat? (laughs) Word for word. Okay. When Jesus finally returns to glory, he will be accompanied by the boss theme from Blue Dragon. It's composed by Numou Uematsu. Its lyrics are by Sakaguchi. And most importantly, its vocals are by Ian Gillen of Deep Purple. The end result sounds like the three parties got into set three separate cars and smashed them together at 100 miles per hour. Yeah, that, that about covers it, don't you think? I like to imagine Gillen took one look at the very JRBG lyrics, a light shining on my heart, a memory of forgotten love, and said, what the fuck? And then, well, I really need the money. <laughs> <laughs> but this song, like... Okay, I have to admit it, it starts off really cool and funky and like really energetic, but it just goes on and, and as, as it goes on, it starts to fall apart. And Ian Gillen sounds like he's just struggling to breathe or he's drowning or something and nothing makes sense anymore. And that's when he gets to the car crash moment that I explained because I love this song and I hate it at the same time. I, I adore it and I despise it. It makes me feel so many emotions that I cannot identify all of them clearly. Very energetic song. Yeah, let's chalk it up to energetic. I just love the fact that uh, Uematsu and Sakaguchi said, hey, let's get the guy from Deep Purple to sing this. It's <laughs> not a song I would, exper- I would expect with uh, Blue Dragon, for sure. Exactly. And I'm wondering if it was just like, okay, we're mixing up kind of American culture a little bit with this Japanese game that we're putting on a very American console. 
was this some sort of compromise? Was was this a twisted fever dream that someone had at some point? I don't know. I would say yes, it was a twisted fever dream that somebody had at some point. It was just, I remember I was working for a video aggregation site when this came out and I put, I immediately put the video up there because it was like the best worst thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I think my editor like immediately removed it. Okay, that's our track of the week for Blue Dragon. It's eternity. What did you think? Tell us in the mailbag. And if you have your own track of the week, send it to me through my DMs or at cat.bailey or at usgamer.net or through the show notes. All right, Nadia, it's letter time. Letter time. It's letter time. The first one is from Bishia Ted. Last week, we reviewed Hades, and we talked about how much we loved it because it is an amazing game, and it's one of my Game of the Year entries, and I wish I were playing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Which it's... I, I have a good problem and a bad problem, Nadia. The good problem is that I have a lot of games that I really enjoy right now, like Star Wars Squadrons. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that it means I can't play Hades. Exactly. It's definitely one of those games where you're like, oh, yay, I'm playing Final Fantasy XIV. Oh, I could be playing Hades, but I love Final Fantasy XIV. But Hades has a what kind do of... do I do? Hades has a very addictive, twitchy sort of feeling to it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. calls you back. Last night, I was just going... I don't want to go to bed. I got too many video games to play. Yeah, sleep is stupid. It's stupid that we have to sleep. This one's from Bishia Ted. Hades is probably the most I've been into a video game in a long time. I can't remember the last time I would start playing a game and completely lose track of how long I've been playing. Also, I demand Supergiant add more content to the game, mostly because I want to give gifts to Electo. Too many times I'm forced into combat and given no opportunity to show her that much I appreciate her. Ah. Oh, Electo. I like, uh... What was it? Tisiphone? Is that the one who's always going murder, murder, murder? I was going to say, isn't that one of the nutty uh, uh, fates? Like, I yes. just remember meeting the other two fates instead of Megara at one point, And Megara's like, I'm really sorry about my sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen Hot Fuzz? No. Oh, my God. No, it's one of the greatest movies ever. You should I watch know. It. I have to. It's, I, it's one of my two or three favorite movies ever. But Really? Yeah, uh, suffice it to say, well, the meme's not going to make any sense to you, but anybody who's seen Hot Fuzz can probably imagine what I'm talking about when you have a character that keeps going, murder, murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you, Gollum. And the next one is from Sammy J9. Hades has been great, though I'm not usually a big fan of roguelikes. The charm of the art, voice acting, and addicting content... Let me look past the rogue elements. Between that and 13 Sentinels, I feel like I'm absolutely drowning in gorgeous artwork. And it's a good problem to have. Speaking of roguelikes, has Star Renegades been brought up on the podcast? I don't remember if it has. That's I think game. it has. Uh, it has a been. few episodes again uh, yes. ago. We talked about it. But that's another game I want to play more and more of. And it actually has a really interesting turn-based combat system. And it's more of an RPG in general. Yeah, Star Renegades is pretty good. Um, I enjoyed it when I was playing it. It's kind of a combination of Shadow of Mordor and the Grandia battle system. Oh my god, I just remembered I haven't played 13 Sentinels yet. Uh, well, it's that time of year, Dottie. All the good it games really coming is. out. Oh, but I love Vanillaware so much. I gotta get that done. Okay, that's the end of our episode. Thanks for listening, as always. If you enjoy the podcast, please do me a favor and leave a review over on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot, and I stream 
over on Twitch at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and her handle is actonkitten on Twitch. We'll be back next week, as always. And I think we're going to be talking about the Baldur's Gate 3 Early Access and hopefully getting an interview with somebody from Larian. Ooh, special. Hey, Larian, if you're listening, come on the show. We want to talk about it with you. We just want to talk. That's all. (laughs) Until then, though, for Nadia and myself, I've been Cat Bailey. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next time. Happy adventuring.